All right, today's uh, scripture, uh, John will be teaching out of Zephaniah 1. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked do not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs up at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do not see, for, the note, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, and you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh secret is when John lost his place on a page or can't find his way in the Bible, he will ask you to turn to Zephaniah. So he believes that it will take you a long time to get there because you can't find it. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you it's between Zechariah and Habakkuk, so go ahead and throw a ribbon there and call his bluff. Um, that said, we are in the, in the 10th Psalm. Um, when we started the 9th Psalm, we said that there are... Many, and perhaps you've got the, the alphabet in your ninth psalm, that would view this as an acrostic. And the acrostic, in order to be completed, has to span, span between 9 and 10. And there's a lot of good arguments for that. Um, it gets a little bit confusing in terms of what you need to ignore at the beginning and where you pick back up. Uh, psalm 9 has a title. Psalm 10 does not. So lots of great arguments for these as being seen together. Generally speaking, I like the tension between 9 and 10, trying to figure out, do they go together? Are they an acrostic? It really draws your attention into these 9th and 10th Psalms. What I see in Psalm 9 is almost more of a believer's experience enjoying in God, in spite sometimes of circumstances, looking specifically at chapter 9, verses 17 and 20. 
The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And so what I think you see between 9 and 10 is a range of experience, a range of emotions, two sides of, a, of the same coin, if you will. And we know that there is nothing new under the sun. We studied the book of Ecclesiastes, which repeats this phrase, under the sun, 29 different times, giving us a positional view of who we are as people, just like the psalmist concludes in verse 20 of chapter 9, let the nations know that they are but men. We tend to forget that. We can tend to forget that we're just people. We're just dust. We platform people so much. It's the most incredible thing. It's almost like we're always looking for someone to platform or to be platformed. Whether it's Elon Musk or Bill Gates just anyone, we want to put someone up, platform that person, and say they've got it all figured out, but they're just people. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. It will continually remind us that so much that we're concerned with is vanity. Under the sun reminds us of God's positional authority because he's not under the sun. God is outside of time. God created all of these things. We only can measure time because God casts everything into existence and things spin and move around each other at the same rate. That's the only reason that time exists is we measure the speed with which planets move around one another. Otherwise, the construct is not real. It doesn't exist. It's just a gift of God that we have time. Now, when we fall back and spring forward, it feels like less of a gift. When you travel from east to west and you're off by three hours and you get used to, you know, going to bed at nine o'clock and then you come back home and it feels a lot more like midnight and you don't know when to wake up or when to sleep, it feels less like a gift. But there's nothing new under the sun. What will be is what will be. And so God, outside of all of that, is wholly different than we are. And that's important to remember. Because as we platform people, as we live in media-sick, media-filled lives, it doesn't cause us to drift towards God. In fact, it causes us to drift away from God and consider everything under the sun. It, it distracts our attention. It calls at our emotions, and it makes us ignore the plain facts around us. Um, if you've ever had the occasion to be somewhere that's not full of light pollution, it's the most incredible reminder of who God is. To be outside and in the dark and to realize how vulnerable that you are when you're in the woods and you can't see your hand in front of your face, and all of a sudden you realize what that phrase means to not be able to see your hand in front of your face. It's kind of terrifying actually, hearing animals of prey moving around. And then you look up at the sky and you see the stars and they look more like a fabric than dimly blinking lights. 
It reminds us of who God is. And we are here looking out, but we become so distracted by everything under the sun that we forget how otherworldly God is. And so we, re- we need to remember that God's authority then constrains everything. God's authority constrains absolutely everything. So that means he either allows it or denies it. But everything is constrained by God. That's why when we read in the book of Job, we see that Job was given permission, or excuse me, Satan was given permission to go this far with Job, but no further. At first, he was not able to affect Job's health. Just to take his possessions. And so Satan had to obey because God had only allowed him to go this far. And so there's a sense in which we need to be aware that we have free will. We have absolute free will. We have absolute creaturely free will. We can do any of the things that a created creature may do. And we can go no further than that. God can create from nothing. God can say, let there be light. And where there was no light before, no concept of light before, there will be light. The darkness will obey and there will be light. That is The creator's free will. Ours is all held within God's authority. Even the very environments that we live in are held together actively. Colossians teaches that all things are held together by the power of his word. So that means if he was to decide to not hold them together, he wouldn't have to cause some cataclysmic accident. There wouldn't need to be a fireball. Things could just cease at his command. But we, under the sun start to think how important we are, and we start to conflate God's grace and his mercy and his patience for the fullness of time with his lack of presence. And that is the flip side of the coin that I believe that we see in Psalm 10, is the believer who's seeing things under the sun and becoming very frustrated with them and conflating them with God ignoring what's happening rather than with God's patience. Our human nature, the kinds of flaws, the kinds of sin that make us be people who have fallen short of God's glory, who are put away from him, who are wholly separate because our entire nature has been corrupted. What part do we have with God? The answer is none, unless some mediator comes along who we now know as Christ. We only know things as people who are under the sun, Our scientists, they learn by creating theories and testing them through a scientific method. So putting forward a thesis that they think they've observed and then testing it in some measurable way, you'll have control groups, and then they're able by testing to determine what they think is true. And so some things are theories and then some things are laws. Gravity is a law. It's always true. You can deny it all you want. You can stand on top of the building here and Uh, For those of us who have been able to stand on their legs on top of that tower right there, you know, if you were to stand on top of that tower and walk off the building and deny gravity, you will die or be terribly injured because it's a law. And so our scientists have determined that by controlling one single input, carbon emissions, you can stop the earth from warming up through science and we can turn that dial back and the earth will stop warming and so we feel like we have advanced in our understanding 
A long time ago, we created the wheel. Really glad we came up with that. The hexagon would be an uncomfortable trip on 83. Um, actually, maybe 83 is a bad example. It might feel exactly the same as driving on a hexagon as it would on 83, but you understand what I'm saying? The wheel makes it more comfortable. We created the wheel and we felt like we were advancing. Came into the Iron Age, started making weapons, and we started advancing. And then we were really advanced because whenever someone else advanced, we could just steal the things from them and take it, and that would be our advancement. We found silicone, we created computers, and we advanced. We created the internet, and TikTok, and maybe slid back a little bit. We dug holes and we found nickel so we could make battery cars and advanced. And what's interesting is, in spite of all those incredible advancements, you look at what the psalmist is wrestling with, and it's no different than what we're wrestling with today. Even though we've made all of these huge advancements, we can, I was talking to a guy just the other night in like a, this neighborhood party, and he works for uh, Canon, company called Canon and he works on MRI imaging and he has a really advanced understanding of how all of that works. It was just the most incredible thing to think about the way that we can see into our bodies and distinguish between different kinds of tissues and bone and see what's wrong. And in, in spite of the fact that we used to just burn tar in the end of a stick and stick it inside someone's wound to cauterize it or saw off someone's leg pretty quickly or we decided that the egg yolk was unhealthy and then healthy again, or we decided that the tourniquet was, a, uh, was an immediate ticket to getting the thing amputated. Now the tourniquet's a good thing. In spite of all of those advancements, we still wrestle with the same kinds of basic things about humanity. I have a little brother who is a PhD in a completely made up science. It's play therapy for children. And in spite of these things, in spite of all these advancements, in spite of uh, uh, DSM version, whatever we're on now, being this thick, we still can't get past our most basic problems. We still struggle with the exact same things. We still can't conquer the kinds of things that Paul struggled with. The spirit is willing, but the flesh was weak. Why do we trip and stumble in the ridiculous areas that we should be able to see coming a mile away? Why do we convince ourselves to have long accounts with sin? Why do we know that we are troubled in a certain area, but we allow ourselves to speak closer and closer to that area until we're right at the edge of our problem. And then yet again, we're surprised that we've fallen in the same sin area that we always do. Why are we like this? Why are we the way that we are? We've made wheels and the internet. We can scan our bodies with magnets that make sound. We can pull atmosphere out of the chamber to make, make the MRI machine make less sound, but we can't stop ourselves from speaking negatively towards other people, taking opportunity to use our words to hurt someone in a way that we know is about to hurt them. What is it about being a person? When we become so close to all of our information, to all of our innovation, to all of our scientific advancements, we become absolutely enamored with ourselves. Just look at TED Talks. You know, there's a guy that has a TED Talk on how to tie your shoe. It's actually pretty good. There's a pretty cool way of tying your shoe that comes it's a little backwards, maybe, of what you know. And it does, in fact, work fairly well. We're so enamored 
with ourselves. We're so impressed by ourselves, but we're just under the sun. It was referenced just this morning in Sunday school. We did, a, as, a, as a church, we, we agreed to, to fast together and, and, and keep a really close account with whenever there was some, some thought or some desire or some behavior or some inkling towards sin, to, to use that as an opportunity for prayer. Many of us were praying quite a bit. I've heard that John rolled over and just started praying that first morning. We're under the sun. And unless we have perspective outside ourselves, we don't drift towards God. In fact, we drift in a wholly different way. We drift away from God. And we see the psalmist in Psalm 10 pointing that out and lamenting that. He'll talk about these people that don't believe in God. They deny God. In fact, they're worse than denying God. They almost make challenges towards God because they've become so impressed by themselves. They've amassed wealth. They've amassed earthly possessions. You know, when people start getting money, they kind of tend to get weird, right? And that's easy to see on Bill Gates who wants to, you know, convince everyone to eat cricket meat, you know, and... Uh, whatever he's doing today, but it's maybe a little more difficult to see in ourselves. We're relatively wealthy. We have no concern over where our next meal is going to come from. Some of us have our hand down to our wrist in a bag of popcorn right now. And so what the psalmist does is allows us to pull back, to pull back in time to, to skip backwards over the timeline of history and see someone from a very long time ago bemoaning the very things that you and I see today, whether we see it on others or we see it in ourselves. Nothing under the sun is new. What has been will be. What is will be. We might make some incremental changes in between. We may make some internet. You know, maybe the metaverse will catch on. Right? Maybe we'll maybe we'll all have cross eyes because we're constantly walking around with goggles all over the place. We'll just kind of live in padded circles, never have to leave them. But the psalmist allows us to see how important it is to get perspective from outside ourselves. Because when we're fully under the sun with no perspective, we don't seek God, we play God. And that's a problem. We begin to conflate ourselves with the kinds of things that are true of God. We think that we can say truisms. And you see that in the world around you. The world around us just says something and says that it's true. They just want it to be true, and so it is true. And so getting perspective to say, well, actually, what we have in the Bible is a God who is a moral authority. He can say what is good. He can say what is love because it's a reflection of his character. Otherwise, we would be making it up. And if you say something is true and you say something is true, how do you reconcile that? And if truth can't be found, then there is no truth. And so a moral authority, that is God, gives us the scriptures so that we can get a perspective from outside the sun. And that's very important because when we don't do that, we play God. So let's look at the psalmist in Psalm 10, uh, starting in verse 1. The psalmist starts out pretty strong. In Psalm 10, why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? 
See, similar language in Psalm 46, if you were to flip forward, says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. So how can these two things be true? If verse 1 says, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And later, Psalm 46 says he's a very present help in trouble. How do we reconcile these things? How are we to understand this range of experience? If we were to look at Psalm 13, a little spoiler alert, it's okay. It's kind of like uh, after a couple thousand years, you don't get to claim spoiler alert. How long, O Lord, Psalm 13, 1, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Or Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Psalm 22, verse 1, is a, is a messianic psalm. And interestingly, if you were to go back in the time that people were having scrolls rolled up and they were being pulled out at the temple and, and read from, uh, no one would have known what you said, even though you're a perfect Hebrew scholar, and I'm aware of that. Coming in and saying, hey, would someone read Psalm 22? They would have no idea what in the world you're talking about. They're not numbered. What you could say is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they would say, oh, I know that. Why are you so far off from saving me? From the words of my groaning. And so in Matthew 27 and verse 46, when Jesus read these very words from the cross, the Hebrew hearers would have understood exactly what he was talking about. He was quoting from what we would say is Psalm 22. He was, he was speaking of the picture of the Messiah that's provided in the remaining verses of that passage. In these moments, Jesus becomes both the penalty and the remedy for the many sins of God's elect. Forever, in his blood, he inked the names of those who would believe in the Lamb's book of life. And for the believer, that should give us a complete relief because our earth-bound soul is completely unable to fully grasp even the holiness of God, even the differentness of God. What, what, is, what is perfection of character even like? I don't know. It's so far from me. It's so far from who I am. I can't even really conceptualize perfect love. But to know that in spite of the fact that I'm so far from that, in spite of the fact that I'm drawn towards almost anything other than God, so easily my affections are pulled away. To know that Christ died on the cross to satisfy the penalty of my personal sins is such an incredible relief. 
you ever think to the things that tempt and even vex or haunt you? Is that terrifying? I find it terrifying. The book of James talks about temptation. It, it doesn't talk about some foreign thing that's being placed in front of you and then you trip and you fall over and you go, oh my gosh, who could have seen that coming? It talks about sin as being the things that you want. And sin is enacted when you go after that thing that you want. It's almost like a fishing metaphor. And I know some of you don't get fishing metaphors. But I think about bait that's in front. It's not like the bait is some strange thing the fish does not want. It's the very thing that the fish would naturally be looking for, presented to it. It's how James presents a picture of sin. And so, like Psalm 22, being messianic, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5, speaks to a similar scene. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Christ redeemed us to God. Redeemed us from what? He redeemed us from ourselves. Our own desire to run not towards God, it's not like we're running towards God and he kind of says, oh, look, you're deep. Come with me. We're sprinting away from God. We desire nothing less than God. We desire everything more than God. If you've known me for more than a year, you've probably heard this, so buckle up your pew belt and relax. It's important um, if you remember back in the day, I don't think the guy's still alive, right? He used to be at every football game simultaneously at the same time. He was an apparition. There was this dude that used to sit in NFL games, usually between the uprights, for whatever reason, wearing a clown wig, and he would hold a sign that said John 3.16. Um, the funny thing about that is that, actually, I think he kind of popularized that verse, uh, rarely or wrongly. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. Verse 19 gets really interesting. And this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. We don't, we're not passingly interested in the darkness. It says we love the darkness. And so if you want to put it on a scale, think blind lady justice. You put darkness on one side, put God and his righteousness on the other. It slams down because we love the darkness more than the light. God must do a work in someone before they see the gospel. There is no God-shaped hole in your heart that you desire to fill with God. You love darkness, not light. And so since the book of Romans says, none seeks after God, no, not one, 
when you become someone seeking after God, that is a supernatural work that has been done because none seeks after God. We are found not looking. We are found loving darkness rather than the light. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God before God by the law or for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus' cry towards God drew the hearer's mind to Psalm 22. And it came as he was bearing the total penalty for all names in the Lamb's book of life, past, present, and future. And so his quoting of Psalm 22, echoing some language from Psalm 10, represents the singular reference of Jesus addressing God not as Father. Psalm 10, verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And so, as I said, I believe that this is two, that, that Psalms 10 and 9 are two sides of a similar coin. Sometimes you're 9, sometimes you're 10. Sometimes you, you see the world in a positive light and you understand that God is working in it. Sometimes you're under the sun and you're mired in your own pity. We like to think of ourselves as the hero of all epics, right? So we like to think of ourselves as the, as the believer who's pushing through and saying, well, God is sovereign. But sometimes that's not us. And so we do well to, to think across the scriptures to get a holistic picture. You, you don't have to flip through all these. I'll read them. They'll come up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 1 Corinthians 15.33 But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Or Proverbs 15.31 The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. The word is instructive. It reminds us that we're creatures under the sun and that we are incredibly susceptible to bad character, even in Christ. I'll tell you, the most, one of the most dangerous things for the believer is to think that somehow, post your conversion, you are now like the Teflon Dawn of sin and sinful activities. That 
You can go straight into the same kinds of environments now that you're a believer that you used to fail in, and now you can act as some radiating, shining light. I was a raging alcoholic, but now I'm in a bar ministry. I submit to you that I know the end of that story. I know where that goes. You don't need to be there. You shouldn't be there. It is unwise for you to be there. And I've had this conversation. And no one that's there in that moment believes it. John, you're a legalist. (laughs) All right. We'll see where it goes. The word is instructive. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. James Coates recently wrote a book about preaching, and in it, he talks about listening to preaching with a ready ear as opposed to a combative ear, meaning preaching should be submitting the word, right? Dividing the word, applying the word, providing the word. And it's so easy to listen critically. And so he makes the point about the Bereans. He said they listened to see if it was so, but what they didn't do was write an email or make a phone call or send a text. What they did was go to the Word to see if it was so. Now strike up an argument. Go read the Word. Spend time in the Word. See if it is so. The Scriptures are instructive, but we don't... Oftentimes we would would rather strain out a gnat and swallow a camel... We'd like to find the way through. We'd like to find the excuse. We'd like to find the small exception. We'd like it to be more gray than black and white. The problem for us is when we take too much of an under-the-sun kind of a perspective, when we try to wrestle with the kinds of things that the world around us is wrestling with, rather than receiving instruction from the Word, we get pulled into vain philosophies and interesting conversations. But if God has already spoken to it, then we should just stand on the concluded Word. I have no need to argue about things where God has already said. Where it's plainly said, I'm okay to stand on that. And if if someone else would like to divide through it and really spend a lot of time wrestling there, it doesn't mean I have to join them. I can give a reason for the hope and faith that lies within me, but I will tell you this. The reason for the hope and faith that lies within me is not the scientific justification for things that you think you see in Scripture. And so what the psalmist is wrestling with here is seeing the results of people living under the sun in a time-bound kind of a perspective. Oftentimes you'll hear people argue about the fairness of God. Well, how could God be good if this is true? How, how can God be fair if this occurs? There are always three scriptures I have that resolve that for me completely. I'll name them and then we'll read them. One is Isaiah 55 and verse 8, which incidentally is actually in the Coates book. Isaiah 45 and verse 9, and then Romans 9, 21. If God is fair, why can this be true? If God is loving, why can that be true? Let's answer the question. Isaiah 55 and verse 8, God speaking. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So before we move on through that too quickly, let me really drive home what that means. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your mind, this is me speaking now, your mind is sin-sick and doesn't understand things as I understand them. God is the sovereign creator God who is omniscient and omnipresent, meaning all-knowing and effectively all places all at the same time. God is not located in some place. It's not like, you know, you, you prayed to God, but you were on the right side of your room, not the left side of your room, so he didn't hear from you because, you know, you were hiding. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. When you feel like you have enacted love and then you compare God to it and you find that he fails the test of meeting the way that you demonstrate love, it doesn't make you right. It puts yourself in the place of God. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay... Say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Just to be really clear, we're the clay and the thing being formed, not the maker. How frequently do you hear someone saying something that sounds almost exactly like that if it wasn't so ridiculous? How would you make that with no handles? God, why would you do that in this way? It's such a preposterous thing to say. You are a time-bound, earthly creature who can't even control its own emotions. If you don't have a sandwich by noon, you're mean towards people. You know, let me get a little uncomfortable in a hot building on a summer day, and I'm angry with everybody. And you ever been in the place, like, I can't stop sweating. It has a little bit to do with my diet, but you get what I'm saying. We can't control anything. Scripture said we can't control the the color of the hairs on our head, but we think that we can question God or we think that we know better than the creator of the universe. Or you think you're scientists because they went to Harvard or Yale or they're a part of the World Economic Forum should be able to tell you how things should be even when it collides with scripture? No, thank you. I'd rather not be a part of that club. Romans 9, 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? These are hard scriptures to wrestle with, except that they're not. If you come to the scripture saying this is the word of God, this is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God. This is the rule for all of life. This is everything I need to know for doctrine, reproof, instruction, training, and righteousness is this. And when it says, has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable, and someone comes and questions that logic, I don't apologize for that. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. I stand on it. Woe to the one under the sun who quarrels with God. Psalm 10, verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in schemes 
that they have devised. The psalmist sees arrogance as the fuel for the treatment that the wicked are placing on people. There is nothing new under the sun, and the scriptures are clear-eyed. The scriptures give such an honest perspective on what it is to be a person, on what humanity is like, what populations of people are like. The wicked, the, the unbelieving world taking advantage of the poor. Arrogance is the fuel that causes that, or pride is the fuel that causes that. Proverbs uh, 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Always used to laugh at this in, in a scenario in my life that highlights me in the best of lights. Um, I was uh, I, I used to uh, commute on my bicycle when we lived in New Mexico a long time ago when my oldest, who's 20, was small enough to be in a, a bike carrier thing. And uh, I remember I was riding with him and I had just gotten this new cart that went behind my bike. And uh, two of my boys were in there hanging out of the little windows of the cart behind my bike and having a blast. And this, this car had been like following me pretty quickly behind. I was quickly getting very annoyed with this person. And finally they kind of pull up and, and they're looking at me all weird. And I'm thinking, who the heck are you, man? And they get in front of me and then we come to this stop sign. So I'm like, finally, I get the opportunity to address this. So I pull up on my bike next to this car and I go to say something. My feet are clipped in and I literally fall into the window of his car. And he says to me, hey, man, I'm sorry I was following you. I, I have some kids and we have a bike and I like to drive them around like that. I was trying to see what the brand on your cart was. And immediately I realized what a blithering idiot I am. I had thought he was following me too close. I was very annoyed with this person. We're probably going to have a spirited conversation. How would that even end up with toddler babies in the back of your bike? I have no idea. What kind of an example would that have been? No idea. Actually, I have a good idea. But I always laugh. Proverbs 16, 18 sticks in my mind so clearly from this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. How many times have you seen that play out in your life? And then how many times does pride affect the way that you treat people around you? You just don't see it coming. Every single time. You can feel, you, if you become attuned to it, you can kind of feel the way pride feels when it starts to puff up in you. It almost feels good, right? It's like a little shot of adrenaline, really. Frankly, we're comfortable with it. It's like an old friend. Oh, there he comes again. I like that guy. He likes to pop off at the mouth quite a bit. But the instructive word for people who are stuck under the sun tells us that pride goes before destruction. They're connected. And a haughty spirit before a fall. It's life under the sun, and it's what the psalmist is seeing. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. On this passage, I like this, this quote. Calvin says, They acquire praise from their presumptuousness and glory in their wickedness. And this foolish confidence or bold assurance is the cause of their throwing off all restraint and breaking forth into every kind of excess. They acquire praise from their presumptuousness and glory in their wickedness. 
And this foolish confidence or bold assurance is the cause of their throwing off all restraint and breaking forth into every kind of excess. That's what the psalmist is seeing in verse 3. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 4. The pride of his face, the wickedness, the wicked does not see him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. This is the way that the world just kind of lives. This is a normal grinding and groaning of life that he's seeing. The wicked, ungodly, have no need for God. They've determined right for themselves. They can just make up right. Whatever they want to be right, they can say that it is. There's no moral constraint. In a godless worldview, that's completely fair and consistent. I would say for, for, for the atheist to be able to say that you can or cannot murder is completely inconsistent with their worldview. Because who says? If all of life is an accident, if there's this cosmic mistake and people somehow end up crawling out of some primordial sludge because a, a lightning bolt hit a, a, a crystal in some dirt water, and an amoeba formed, and then over time it turned into a baby, and that baby became a person, and then there was two people, and one of the people had something the other one wanted, then why can't one kill the other? It's just an accident. should be survival of the fittest, unless there's a God who says, people are the crown of my creation, they're born in my image, and I have a purpose for them to bring me glory, and I will redeem them in my son. Otherwise, who cares? Race to the top, survival of the fittest. I will crush you on my way up, unless there's a God. And that's what happens when we're fully under the sun with no perspective outside ourselves. We don't seek for God, we play God. Verses 5 through 9, the psalmist continues, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the village, hiding in places. He murders the innocent. His eyes are stealthily watching for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. In these verses, the psalmist is struggling as he's observing the attitudes of the wicked, as he's observing powerful people, rich people, godless people, treating others awfully, horribly. Because he knows God. He's on the other side of the coin, maybe. Some days you're on the God is sovereign and I see everything wonderfully. Some days you're on the God, why do you, why do you allow this? You're a holy, righteous God. Why are the, these kinds of crimes? Why are there I, like crimes against children? I've shared before. I don't have, I don't have a place for that in my mind. I remember this, this little girl that was in um, Brianna and I taught Sunday school together for a very long time. 
And I remember this little girl that was in our Sunday school class, and she was legally blind. She could, you know, she would color on a coloring page and put it in front of her face, and she could tell you it was green, right? And she would always come in and give me this big hug and kind of climb on my leg, and I'd kind of like shake her off, you know? And then one day her mom came in and said, hey, if her dad tries to pick her up, you're, you can't do that. He's legally not even allowed into the building. And then another day she came back and said, it turns out that she's been sexually abused by her father for almost her entire life. How is that? So in a sense, it's easy to shrug off and say, well, God is sovereign and be on that side of the coin. But to be on the flip side of the coin in a dark, evil, twisted world, I understand the psalmist's struggle. But taking a step back and getting perspective outside the sun is so incredibly helpful. But also remembering that the God-man died for us, bearing the full wrath of God, so much so that he would recall on Psalm 22, why have you forsaken me? Is encouraging and confounding. And so the psalmist struggles with observing the world that the wicked create. They prosper with almost no concern for God and his judgment. Place themselves over others. Verse 7 says, wickedly treating people. No regard for people. You want to you see that? Go, go into an office setting. I know they don't exist anymore, right? So you've got to log into someone else's Zoom call. Where people are jockeying for control, where people are jockeying in the background to kind of move up the ladder, it's almost pitiful when you step back and observe it. People undercutting each other right and left. For what? To be a manager in an office? In light of eternity, that is going to be one of the strongest things that you have ever desired. <laughs> And this is the world that the psalmist is observing long before all of our advances. Well, why is this still going on? We made the wheel. We've even got Teslas with foam wheels, half foam, half air. Much quieter car, smoother ride. Runs on batteries, it's great for the environment. Strip mine a little nickel. Good to go. We created the wheel. We, we, we created the, the silicon microprocessor. We created the internet. We made TikTok. That's funny. We can x-ray ourselves and see inside of our own bodies, right? We can even, uh, I mean, there's some crazy things that we can do. We can, we can transplant a heart. We've had that in our own midst. You can transplant eyes. but we can't seem to conquer the things that we're naturally drawn towards. Why do these weird struggles continue? Verse 10 and 11. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Despite all the advances that we've had since this writing, 
Why do we still struggle with these same ways? God seems not to be fixing these things, he says in verse 1. In verses 2 and 3, he sees the arrogant, the arrogant people, the, the sinful, the prideful people pursuing the poor for gain. Verses 3 and 4, he sees the wicked renouncing the Lord and denying that he exists, full of cursing and deceit and murder. In verses 7 and 8, and finally, seizing and drawing the poor into a net. The psalmist does well describing life under the sun. And it's helpful for us, frankly, to get that perspective, to understand also that we can be drawn and wooed and called by the world into those very things that tempt and try us. But 1 John 4.4 reminds us, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so for us, for those elect, for those who believe, we need to keep our eyes on a graceful God who has redeemed us in Christ, not on the noisy world around us, not on vain philosophies. Those things pull us away from God. More time in the world in the Word would do us so much better than participating in some specific apologetic or some line of argumentation. If you had to make a decision between studying a specific apologetic for Mormons or Muslims or Jehovah's Witness versus another 10 minutes of reading in your scriptures or prayer, I would suggest you spend 10 minutes reading in your scriptures or praying. We need to keep our eyes on a graceful God who has redeemed us in Christ. And we need to live differently, not, not for performance sake. We don't need to live differently so that we can live up to the standard that God has for us. Fruit comes from the vine, not from the thing growing on it, right? Grapes don't grow big because they're a particularly good grape. They grow big because of something about the vine. We should desire to live differently for God's glory, and that should become our aim and our purpose. And if God's glory and living for his glory is our aim and our purpose, we will live differently. But we have to remind ourselves of that daily. It's part of our sanctification. It's part of being created more and more into Christ's image every single day is reminding ourselves that we're but dust. Living for his glory gives us new purpose and new substance. It also shapes our daily activities. It shapes our thoughts. It shapes our patterns of work. And so if you were to go back and look at your own patterns, your own activities, your own daily thoughts, are they working towards being glorifying to God? Or are they working towards being glorifying to your own desires? Because there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Our own understanding is time-bound and it exists under the sun. We start to think really highly of ourselves. We place ourselves in the position of God. And so coming back to the word, spending time in our devotion, spending time in prayer, spending time reading the word, not dwelling on the madness of the world around us, will draw us back towards God. It's like we read early in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived beloved. Bad company ruins good morals. 
In Proverbs 15.31, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. And so we would do well to remember that God's authority constrains everything. And so what that means is that when things feel desperate, like Psalm 10, they're not. When things feel out of control, like Psalm 10, they're not. When we feel lost and alone, we are not. The range of experience between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 is perspective. I would encourage you to read those two psalms today, and you'll see they're talking about similar themes from an opposite side of a coin that's all about perspective. Understanding who God is and understanding who we are allows us to see the same situation in vastly different lights. When we gain godly perspective, our feet, our heart, our lives become completely reoriented. And maybe you know what I mean. Maybe you're a believer. You've been a believer for a long time. And it's just, you're just kind of a little more numb than you were at first. Or a little more numb than you want to be. Or a little less engaged than you desire to be. Remember, we don't drift towards God. We drift away from God. And we always drift towards what we're focused on. So a re-changing, a reorienting of our focus will bring us back into right fellowship. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you for the range of perspective that you provide to us in your word that the psalmist, God, that the the writers, the people in focus in scripture aren't just these heroes conquering life, always happy and floating through, but God, that they're very real and they speak to my own range of emotion. That, That you give a healthy perspective on my position before you And God, that you've given us Christ as our payment and our forgiveness. God, we thank you for all these things. I pray for us this week that we go with Psalms 9 and 10 and learn more about the range of the believer's experience. God, that you would remind us of your great grace and your patience with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we uh, worship through Psalms.